Welcome to Let's Talk Product, a podcast by Propeller about building software products and companies. I'm your host, Lean Ashkal, and on this show, we explore what it takes to build global tech products. We cover everything from user experience to customer obsession, product strategy to scaling software. If you're a MENA-based startup looking for an early-stage investor, get in touch. We'd love to talk. On today's episode, we've got a great guest and a dear friend of Propellers, Fuad Jiries, co-founder of Maqsam, the friendliest cloud telephony solution in the MENA region. You might also know him as the co-founder of Kashbasha. Over the past decade or so, Fuad has built and launched a variety of tech projects and businesses across multiple industries, including e-commerce, logistics, and communication. On this episode, he joins us to share his entrepreneurship journey and the lessons learned along the way. He talks to us about how he and his co-founders validate launch and scale products, going over how they identify new opportunities, test their MVPs, acquire their first customers, and make the tough decisions around focus. If you're an early stage founder or someone thinking of starting their own business, make sure to stay tuned as Fuad has a ton of lessons for you. Fuad, thank you so much for coming on our show. We're very excited about this episode, especially as you're one of the most experienced people in the tech and startup space in Jordan and the Middle East as well. Uh, You've worked and consulted big tech giant software companies, including Google and Microsoft, and have started your own companies, most notably Payhyper, Kashbasha, and most recently Maqsam. I would love to start off with hearing about your path into the entrepreneurship world. When did that journey begin? Well, thanks for so much so much for having me, Lean. It's great to be on the show with you. Um, it's kind of a long story, so I'll, I'll give you the, the basis or the, one of the most uh, fundamental events that I think happened in my childhood that uh, really wanted me to spring towards entrepreneurship in my life. And uh, that's basically when I was five years old. In the early 90s, I was living in the States with my parents. Uh, I was born in the States uh, as well, but uh, one day my dad walked into the house and he told me that he had lost his job. And that was a pivotal event for me. It was a huge event. My parents are very transparent, even with us as, as, as children. Uh, but my dad was a biomedical engineer working in the uh, US, you know, well-to-do for a very good company. And in my world, my construct of how, what the world is, you know, dads go and work in the day, moms sometimes work, maybe they don't, they stay home with the kids and, and whatever. That was my world. And, you know, my dad coming and saying, you know, there was a, a recession and, and things are changing and I'm going to lose my job really just didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time. And I saw other people who had their own businesses. And I was like, why doesn't my dad have his own business? Why couldn't he actually control whether he works and when he does that and when he mm-hmm. doesn't? And that really, you know, made me realize that I wanted to have my own business. I wanted to be independent at a very young age. It might be tough to believe, but that kind of got me into it a little bit, a little more, uh, uh, you know, uh, through childhood. And what was your first project? Did you do anything while you were in school? I'm not sure it was at the age of five, but maybe later on. Definitely not at the age of five. Uh, but uh, we moved back to Amman uh, after things in the States kind of got, uh, you know, a, a bit rough. Uh, let's say and there were some hardships. But we moved back to Amman uh, in 93. Uh, I was seven years old at the time. Uh, but by the time I was in the fifth grade, uh, because my dad was a technology uh, enthusiast and, and an engineer, um, I had a playground of a network of computers in uh, you know one of our rooms at our, at our home mm-hmm. that I was playing around with. 
I learned or was familiar with programming at a young age, you know, sitting on his lap and becoming familiar with all the things that he was enthusiastic about. And I really wanted to get into technology because I was inspired by him. And so I had a CD burner, uh, you know, in 95, 96, before anyone, uh, you know, had a CD burner at the time. I had a, a high-speed internet connection uh, because he furnished that for his own use and his own business. Uh, and, you know, I had access to all these things. And so I started a small business, let's say. My first venture was burning CDs, downloading pirated music off of Napster at the time or the internet through my, uh, you know, uh, DSL line, which bar barely people didn't have. Uh, um, and and really selling these pirated CDs to my friends, whether like video CD discs or or mixed CDs, and uh, my bro I brought my brother into the whole thing. He was two two years younger than I was, and we called it since both our initials start with FJ. We called it FJ squared, and we'd make these really <laughs> nice covers and and sell them. And uh, that was my first kind of experience with being independent. I uh, went into high school. I started uh, doing varsity jackets, like the graduation jackets for schools. Uh, and, and, my, and my classmates, and so that kind of uh, you know got me into uh, this that I kind of was bitten by the bug. Like I can do these business things, not necessarily yeah. in technology, but I was excited about it, and that's how uh, things kind of kicked off. But I only got serious about it when I got to college as well. Uh, so went back to uh, university in Boston. Uh, okay. I was lucky to be able to go back, uh, and um, you know it was very studious at the time. But uh, I also started my first real project there. And what were you studying at university? So I did a degree in uh, computer science and business um, mm -hmm. uh, at the University of Massachusetts uh, in Dartmouth. And um, uh, it was a great experience for me. And uh, I met some great people, did a lot of projects, uh, you know, and I wanted to really focus on trying to do extracurricular things. Uh, mm -hmm. And so one of those things was, um, you know, I had two jobs that I was working as well during college, but I also wanted to be a part of starting a business. And uh, we started a very small business uh, that I was doing out of our dorm room at the time. Wow, that was all during college. That was all during college, <laughs> okay. yes. And then, and then you graduated and did you move back to Jordan right, uh, right off the bat or did you work in the U.S. for a bit? Can you tell us a bit more about that phase in life? So I really wanted to stay in the U.S. Uh, as long as I could, uh, but uh, luck uh, had it that a re another recession hit in 2008 when I graduated. Uh, so even though I was a, uh, you know, a, a well-performing student and, uh, you know, all that, the, the market was very tough, but I still wanted to do my own projects and I started exploring one of my other ideas at the time. Uh, it was an ambitious idea in the advertising industry, uh, and um, you know, I, I thought that the market would actually accept it. I built it out. I spent some time in the states talking to investors, going to events, and you know, Boston being the let's say the Silicon Valley of the East Coast, it was a great place to be and uh, mm -hmm. meet new people. There were events happening all the time, uh, but uh, you know, nothing really came out of it. Investors were not really interested in that type of early stage uh, startup with one founder who really didn't have a team around him. And I moved. Uh, I didn't move immediately back to, or wanted to move back to Amman immediately, but I was spending Christmas in Amman in 2009 uh, with, uh, with my parents, and I happened to meet uh, Dr. Osama Fayyad uh, at the time, mm -hmm. who was the chief data officer at Yahoo in California, who was also making a move back to the region. And, uh, you know, we, we met over there. I told him about the project I was building. He was very excited about it. He even looked into investing in the project, but then wanted to bring me on as a consultant. And I had mm -hmm. studied his work. I knew about him. Uh, he is a very big deal in the data mining space, one of the people who actually coined the term data mining in general. And I had studied some of his work during college. And so we kind of hit it off. And uh, he said, since you have an, you know, an American citizenship, it might be easy for us to start doing work 
works for some big companies which he had direct connections to. And uh, we, uh, I joined his, um, his uh, data mining and data strategy consulting company called Open Insights at the time. And uh, I was director of uh, technology after a while, and we uh, started traveling back and forth between Amman and the States, building a team for that company and doing some amazing projects for some uh, top-level companies. And uh, how long did that last for? That was uh, that lasted for about two years, but working with Osama and uh, people who know Dr. Osama uh, know that he has his hands in, in many different uh, projects. So it was great to be around him, learn from him, and uh, and also get involved into other uh, businesses that he was uh, a part of. Uh, one other business that he was involved with was dwng.com, which had a very ambitious goal of fortifying Arabic content on the internet. Uh, you know, uh, uh, at the, uh, at the time. So in parallel to uh, working on projects with Open Insights which were uh, a bit seasonal. Uh, we were actually incubated inside the DWNG office for a while, and I got to meet the team, and I got to meet Majid Qasim uh, as well, who was uh, the CEO of the company at the time. And I started you know, tinkering around with a few ideas, and, and um, I liked them, they liked me, and I also joined DWNG uh, further to uh, kind of grow their business and their, uh, their, their product uh, side of, uh, of the business as well. So I uh, became involved with them in trying to build a rich media content website when you know YouTube was only in English and you didn't you didn't have the Enghamis of the world, you didn't have all that stuff, and trying to kind of build a user-generated content site that really uh, would grow uh, the Arabic content, which was still and still is very very small all over the internet. And you did that out of the U.S. as well. Uh, no, I did that uh, mostly uh, the Dwangi part from Amman, but I was going back and forth between uh, you know Amman and uh, and the U.S. mainly uh, the Seattle area. And if I'm not mistaken, a few years after that, I guess you moved back to Amman and you decided you ended up starting your own company, PayHyper. So can you tell us a bit more about where did that idea come from? What did you set out to solve at the time? Absolutely. So um, my co-founder and very good friend at the time, uh, Sinan Taifur, um, brilliant engineer and very good friend. Uh, we were all uh, we were both uh, very excited about starting a business together. We had thought about it, uh, and we were just looking for the right opportunity. And it, looking at the Arab world, uh, you know, thankfully we have many problems and many challenges and many puzzles to solve. So it's a great market to kind of be in and, and try and see how we can make things easier. Uh, things such as erasing borders for payments. Payments is a huge problem. Eighty percent of the Arab world is unbanked or underbanked in one way or another. And so uh, e-commerce, although it's growing, although there's a big thirst for people to buy stuff online even back then, and Souq was you know, in the midst of their their, uh, their, their journey at the time, uh, there was still a huge problem with cash on delivery, uh, cash is king, people wanted to order things and pay in cash, they didn't have the credit cards or didn't trust using credit cards online. So we started thinking of alternative ways to allow for payments to happen where the, um, the risk is not just on the merchant who's supposed to deliver an item to the doorstep of the customer, and 30 to 40% of the time, uh, they would actually not pay for the item once it arrives at their doorstep. So the merchant was taking up so much risk getting the item at the pledge from a customer to pay for it once it arrives at the door and then just completely dropping the ball and not paying for the order. And it was just a problem, especially in cross-border uh, activities that were happening uh, with, with e-commerce. So we thought differently about how we can do that and kind of provide a facility for people to pay in cash, but not have the merchant take up all the risk that they were taking up. And so the idea of PayHyper, building a cash collection network uh, through an API, kind of an API to the real world, uh, came uh, into our minds. And we wanted to see if we can actually build a network of different um, uh, delivery or collection partners uh, and facilities, either physical stores 
or delivery uh, companies to go and actually collect the cash from these uh, particular uh, uh, users or, or, uh, or shoppers uh, and be able to immediately confirm those payments to the merchants before the delivery of the item to their doorstep. Uh, and so that's how that happened there. And, and uh, we had a lot of tr trials and errors and we uh, got in front of some big e-commerce players, Souk at the time, and, and we tried to sell them on the idea. And it was an interesting journey. Uh, there as well. And did you end up building what you initially envisioned as a solution for the problem? Because you know what's clear here is you are proact you work proactively looking for a problem to solve, and I guess you identified a bunch of them, ended up selecting this, and then kind of like brainstorming multiple solutions. So, how did that evolve? How does this? How did the solution evolve? Uh, at that time. Of course. So uh, the, as I was saying, uh, I mean, we built out this network. We were excited and we had the technology ready. It was it was good to, to be integrated into any uh, single e-commerce site or, uh, uh, or or player. And we I remember going to uh, Marka VIP, which was a big e-commerce player in, in Jordan. Uh, I remember getting in front of souk.com. We were able to contact them and tell them about our technologies. Everybody was interested about it. Mm -hmm. But they were like, okay, we'll put you in the pipeline six months down the road or eight months down the road. This is going to solve a big problem for for us, however, mm -hmm. um, you know, we were impatient entrepreneurs. We didn't want to wait around six months, mm -hmm. and so we we thought about eating our own dog food, as they say, yeah. and using the technology that we built. And we said, what can we do around this technology to kind of prove that this model actually works? Was it a use case to go to your customers and kind of validate that this is something that has potential applications? Absolutely. So, so what we ended up doing at that time was build Cash Basha. The idea of Cash Basha, we knew that people were shopping from Amazon and uh, eBay, and that's where all the variety of products were. That's where the uh, discounted products were. Uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of e-commerce happening in the Arab world. It was significant for the size of, of the market at the time, but still, there was so much more happening with cross-border shipping through shipping companies, uh, where you'd have to get an address in the U.S. because they don't these these websites don't ship internationally, where you have to get a credit card that actually works on a foreign website because they don't process local or their fraud rates that happen very highly in this part of the world. And so you'd have to mm -hmm. go through all these loops and hoops to get an item to your doorstep. We started thinking, well, we have a cash collection network. If we can just figure out the rest of the cycle mm -hmm. and that put them on top of each other, we can act as the first client for this pay hyper network that we've actually built. And so Cash mm -hmm. Basha came around as an experiment, purely as an experiment, not necessarily as a uh, uh, a product that we envisioned to become a, a larger, uh, uh, you know, adventure at the time. So tell us a bit more about how did you like do that experiment? What did the MVP look like for Cash Basha? Uh, yeah, great question. Uh, so uh, early on, we um, we it was just me and Sinan. We, so we built the, uh, the the first iteration of the product. Mm -hmm. The idea was to kind of focus on the experience, to make this as seamless as possible for a person who's looking to shop on these international websites without having to go through all these you know very inconvenient uh, you know payment or logistical uh, worries or even through customs and all that stuff and try to uh, create a single channel where you can go to a service, get the item to your doorstep as if you're in the US. So we did a lot of manual work on the back end without the, the customers actually knowing about it. Obviously, we're, we're uh, you know, come from an engineering background. We definitely want everything to be automated. But the best way to automate things is actually do them manually first, get it right, and then uh, automate bit by bit. So Cash Basher was just a mm -hmm. simple interface that connected to PayHyper, our API. And once a person went onto uh, Cash Basha, they were redirected to uh, Amazon or eBay or any single website that we had integrated at the time. They would go and get the item that they want. We would be able to immediately calculate uh, the full price of the item delivered to their doorstep in their local currency, and they would be able to pay cash. Once that cash pay you know, confirmation goes through, 
a person would go and collect the cash from their doorstep. At that time, I think for the first maybe 300 orders or so, um, mm-hmm. you know, I did that by myself. So I was actually the person that went and I collected the cash and I did all those things and, you know. Do things that don't scale. <laughs> uh, yeah, we did things that don't scale at all. Uh, and then we got more partners on board, but we learned so much from the process of doing that. And so, um, uh, you know, even placing the orders through like shipping companies on accounts that we had on these different uh, sites and, and we did all the customs clearance ourselves and, and we delivered the products as well. And then bit by bit, we got more, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, careful about automating and, and we started to grow. Uh, but really, I think one of the main things that, um, that were very important uh, for the uh, MVP uh, was that, uh, you know, we built everything in a way that can be scalable uh, and we built it in a way that uh, would be remote. Uh, Sinan and I were not in the same country when we built mm-hmm. Cash Basha, but we really wanted, we didn't really expect it to have such big growth uh, that it did at the, at the time. So so what happened afterwards? So PayHype, were you still trying to find potential customers for PayHype? Because initially this was supposed to be kind of like a validation that here's one use case for this product. Product. So tell us a bit more about that decision of PayHyper versus CashBasha, killing PayHyper, getting into CashBasha. Yeah, so uh, I wouldn't actually say that we killed PayHyper per se, but it just became the okay. uh, the infrastructure or the backbone that CashBasha was working on. And during the time that we had validation, um, uh, we tried to go and, and get more clients to actually use PayHyper, and we were successful at that. We had uh, maybe about a handful of clients uh, of uh, international companies that were looking at us and saying, oh, how are you able to do this inside this market, for example, or a few markets, whether it's Saudi Arabia or Jordan, and are able to uh, reduce your, your losses? Uh, and, um, you know, collecting cash is not just useful for e-commerce, uh, you know, in the traditional sense for tangible products. It could be for digital products. It could be for tickets online. It could be for, uh, you know, anything that you that you want to get so there were some use cases and there were a handful of clients that were interested but the growth of mm-hmm. cash basha because we were solving such a big problem for a b2c uh, uh market uh was just mm-hmm. uh it just took so much of our attention that you know there's a real market here a real need and a real problem where we're solving we should grow this out and it kind of took on a, a life of its own um and and how and how did that growth come to be was it mostly organic did you guys do a bit of marketing at the start because i guess you you started with your connection family and friends but then what yeah so uh, great question so at the beginning um, obviously during this process I'll take a step back uh, this, during this process even during pay hyper and kind of uh, not finding the right clients and not finding the right you know uh, before cash pressure came around we were kind of burnt out to be quite honest and we were working long mm-hmm. hours uh, you know Sanan and I are our uh, workaholics, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to be better at it, but uh, but we we at the time we were really uh, 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 we're overworking ourselves trying to get something to work, and uh, we were kind of burnt out. That we said, let's just try this cash basha idea and see what happens with it. And we thought that it would be important for us to have a clear KPI or a limit to where we assess that this is going to be successful or not within the first month of actually launching the product. Okay. So. The metric that we that we agreed on together was if we don't get 60 orders from people that we don't know entirely okay. within the first month of operations, we would shut down mm-hmm. and we would move on. Not 59, not 58, like it has to be 60 or more orders. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do any marketing without, so the condition was no marketing, nothing. We'll put this out there, uh, you know, tell people about it in, in particular places, but it has to have a ripple effect 
where these other people that we know also tell other people around them and they it resonates with them as an idea. So we put up a simple page before we launched uh, where people could sign up. I put it on my social media channels. Uh, uh, and, you know, that's, that's all we did. Uh, and we got some signups. But then when we did launch, uh, we were just you know, uh, baffled that in the first two days of actually placing uh, the the site uh, or taking the site live, we would have uh, a little over 60 orders within the first two days of the business. So the market validated exactly. that this was a valuable opportunity for us. I love that. Um, yeah, because we come across a lot of startups, a lot of founders, you know, you, you've got a lot of people excited about starting their own company, uh, going down the path of like, I am my own boss. And you they tend to probably get somewhat attached to that first idea that comes to mind um, so I absolutely love that like quantitative experimental mindset of okay this is my end goal if it doesn't work I might move on to something else rather than just working on something for what my drug to over a year or two absolutely. without much of validation and investing too much in building the product too soon so on, on that topic of investing did you guys when you launched um, how much work did you put in into building Cash Basha? I know a lot of the work had been done previously on um, PayHyper, but can you tell us a bit more on the tech side, the engineering investment up to that date before launch? Uh, up to that date in specific before launch, it was minimal, honestly. So I think building the first iteration of Cash Basha uh, took about maybe a month and a half uh, to get it out there because we, by design, wanted things to be manual on the back end. We wanted it to seem to be automated to the customer, mm -hmm. but the majority of operations would be manual. Um, today in Cash Basha or even, you know, uh, a few months after that, once we got everything down uh, to uh, uh perfection in terms of uh, the, the processes, uh, I'd say 99% of every operation that happens in, in Cash Basha is completely automated, whether it's through a logistics company, a payment company, or a third party, or even uh, estimating customs uh, and what have you, uh, and even some parts of customer service. Uh, so uh, early on, we by design wanted it to be completely bare bone, but seem to be automated to the customer to give them that seamless end-to-end uh, -end service that they were looking for. And, and was, I know Sinan comes from a technical background, so was he the one who built that product? From the engineering side, uh, I, I was building the product on the on the product design side and the the uh, information architecture and, and uh, okay. all of that stuff. And then mm -hmm. he was doing a lot of the backend work. Yes, that's correct. Okay. And did you hire anyone? What did the team look like? Yeah, uh, we got up to our first uh, 2,000 orders with it just being Sinan and I, actually. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, so we were able to uh, scale the business quite a bit, and we were able to automate things without having to have an official hire. Our first official hire was in uh, January, uh, sorry, March of 2014, I believe. Uh, and uh, we uh, brought on a great person with a logistics background uh, who was able to help us with operations and allow us to focus more on, on how do we take this business that, you know, kind of fell into our laps to uh, you know a larger level and we were very passionate about it we were passionate about the growth we were passionate about the e-commerce industry and what mm -hmm. it could mean uh, and uh, we built a lot of the underlying uh, products that uh, uh, that you know made cash basha work and kind of thought about how do we take this and evolve it into the next levels of, of our careers uh, we knew that cash basha was an experiment it was potentially a risky idea because yeah. it relied on third parties, and we realized that uh, going into it. Uh, but we said that maybe there is a window of time where we can actually 
not just it wasn't about making money it was just about getting enough traffic and learning enough from this experiment that we put together to be able to build other things that could be useful as tools to other companies that are similar in the e-commerce field or beyond okay so fast forward a few years and you come up with a new business idea right which is what you are currently working on maqsam so was that also a product that you developed internally as you just said like part of that toolbox uh, can you tell us a bit more about how that idea was born? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, even taking a step back, uh, if you look at Cash Basha, the components of Cash Basha being payments, logistics, customs clearance, and customer service, we actually built products for every single uh, type. Here we're touching on PayHyper, which we mentioned for, for payments, uh, mm -hmm. which the code for, for PayHyper still is embedded in Cash Basha and being used today. Uh, we built a logistics platform for deliveries, actually, uh, ourselves. Oh, we wow. never ended up launching that one, so that's uh, something that people don't know about too much but we also looked at every single module in the platform uh, and we tried to see if we can build something around it or uh, like kind of extrapolate it and build a, a business into it so kind of that two, that two chest but when we got to the point of doing customer service we were servicing six markets at the time the mm -hmm. Arab world is an extremely fragmented place uh, uh, you know as we all know uh, and it was either going to cost us a couple of hundred thousand dollars to go for a traditional system uh, that, uh, that involved hardware and software and it was built for enterprises to do uh, simple calls uh, with customers in these different markets that we were serving. We wanted to get local numbers on, in these in these markets so that customers can call us and we can pick up the line and be able to serve service them. So either we're going to go for a hundred thousand uh, dollar plus solution, mm -hmm. or we're going to actually think of. An alternative and we ended up one having to build our own because there was no other solution in the market that could help us mm -hmm. so what we work on today uh, is a evolution of that particular idea uh, which eventually became maqsam so okay. uh maqsam is it was yeah a seed that we planted i guess in cash basha to service our own needs because we felt the pains uh, so very strongly uh, okay. in uh, in that field and uh, and what germinated from there ended up becoming a, a company of its own how how did that happen? Okay, so you build it for yourself, you use it, you're like, oh my God, this just like transformed our lives, right? And so did you go out trying to sell that as a separate product alongside Cash Basha initially? How did you know that this was something worth pursuing and doubling down on? Uh, I mean, between everything uh, that, we, that we've built as well, there was another payment product that we saw. It was a buy now, pay later product. Uh, arguably, we might have been the first people to introduce that in the Arab world. Uh, so it was, there were two big ideas that we came up with from this cash basha experiment. One is a buy now, pay later product called Jabe, which got a lot of attention. Uh, we partnered up with larger companies like MasterCard uh, and, and you've gone to different accelerators. Uh, and, and we actually loaned out uh, in the millions of dollars uh, to customers to actually give them credit for the unbanked world in a very new way. Uh, and it still exists today, but it's embedded into the cash basha system as well. We never ended up pursuing it on its own because there's a lot of complication with uh, licensing and regulation around that particular uh, market. And uh, we couldn't find the- Especially at that time, I'm At guessing. that time, absolutely. So this is maybe two years uh, ahead of the market. And today there are a lot mm -hmm. of uh, buy now, pay later products in the market that are doing very, very well and raising a lot of money. But uh, at the time, uh, Jeb, uh, the, the product that we tried to build, uh, mm -hmm. was not in the in, in fashion, I guess. 
okay. with a lot of the investors, and we were doing a lot too much, uh, way too much, way too much. So we realized at one point that in talking to investors, they were looking at us like, okay, so you have this payment thing, you have this cash basher thing, you have this, and yeah. you know, cash basher is risky. Uh, you don't know, you know Amazon's coming into the into the market. All these different things characterized us, unfortunately, in the eyes of investors as people were doing too much, uh, which I don't blame yeah. them for. Although we knew internally that we were uh, doing the right thing by experimenting and learning a lot, and there's so much opportunity. But when we settled, we realized that you know the product that we built in Maksam, uh, potentially in cloud telephony in general, uh, there was going to be a revolution in communication. Things are changing. Uh, telcos are uh, uh, not really moving as quickly as the rest of the market is. Uh, we've seen what happened, uh, you know, recently with with uh, online video, uh, especially in the pandemic. Uh, not knowing, obviously, we'd get into that later on, but we did have an idea that this was a real pain for a lot of companies like us, and there was no solution in the market uh, to kind of cater to that. So once we um, uh, uh, once we had kind of an MVP in place, we started using it. In our building in the business park here in Amman, uh, we had different companies that we all knew and, and, and you know worked with who also used some sort of telephony solutions. And uh, I remember Al-Tubbi uh, being, and Jalil Labadi, the CEO, uh, being obviously great friends. Uh, he was in the building and we went up and we knocked at his door and we said, uh, hey, uh, Jalil, what are you doing for uh, you know communication between patients and doctors? He says, oh, we're using this American company, very well-known American company at the time, but our uh, drop rate on these calls is 40% plus. So 40% of the calls actually don't go through and the quality is absolutely terrible and they're costing us a fortune. It's like 30, 40 cents a minute to be able to mm-hmm. deliver calls in the region and it's just a terrible service and we this is like a core thing that we need to fix and we were like huh i think we have a solution for you so we went back Sinan and i mm-hmm. kind of drew out the initial api for call conferencing uh that happens between uh you know the, the, the two parties uh through uh, telco networks and uh we were able to offer that api to atubi and uh they became one of our first official customers okay so that's that was your first instinct of okay there's some we're building something of value there are other people that want it and i'm guessing given the way you thought about launching and testing Cash Basha, you also wanted to make sure that you have a good group of unaffiliated customers that tell you that, okay, this is something I'm worth paying for. How long did it take you to get to that point of figuring out that, okay, Maksam is a product of of good potential. Um, there is a great market opportunity that you want to like double down on. So the initial version of Maksam actually lived inside of Cash Basha uh, for about two, uh, two and a half years maybe before we actually launched it uh, you know, as an independent venture. And we thought that this is the one we want to focus on. But uh, what we definitely do know in the Arab world specifically is that you need customers in different markets. You can't put all your eggs in one basket. This is a very risky mm-hmm. region in general. And so we learned so much from our experiences in Cash Basha that we didn't want to repeat in, in Maksam. But we did know that the way the outside world, whether they're investors or customers, everybody was looking at us, was that, you know, we were very... Um, we were a team with a high output. We had a great engineering team on board. We uh, knew how to build products. We were very good at doing it at the initial stages. But how do we get something to the next stage? So exactly what you're referring to. How do we take it to the more validation, more uh, more products and things like that? So we knew that we had to do some things on the governance side of the organization where we needed to take Maksam out, become comfortable with the idea that this is the one that we're going to make work and put all of our, uh, you know, our, our uh, hard work into and try and make into a, uh, a great opportunity for us as professionals. Uh, and so mm-hmm. we said we were going to leave our 
uh, old organization, which is this conglomerate of different products, and uh, just focus fully on this one product that we think has a huge potential in the Arab world, and we wanted to be able to make it in a clean fashion. So what we had to do is kind of buy out our investors in the old venture that we had, mm. and and uh, you know have full autonomy there, take Maqsam out as an independent uh, uh, company, and kind of double down on it and be able to, to grow it. And and so we knew already through that time, even before doing this, that we in talking to customers uh, potentially or our contacts uh, across the region, some of our fellow portfolio companies from our other investors that there was a need for this type of service. And we started giving them test accounts and you know very simple versions of this uh, particular product that weren't featureful, uh, but kind of hit the uh, the need uh, that uh, the customers uh, you know had at the time, and kind of the pains that we had experienced were were shared by those customers, and they took on mm-hmm. being uh, you know paying customers slowly but surely. Uh, it was only maybe about till a year ago where I thought that it's time to now fully focus on growing the business side of of Maxam as a SaaS platform in the telephony space and kind of create this. Uh, you know the, the the persona that we have, which is we are the friendliest uh, telephony solution, not even cloud uh, telephony solution, but we want to be the friendliest telephony solution uh, in MENA for SMEs and startups. And what it takes to get to that point is uh, a lot of focus on uh, you know building the product in the right way, or the pricing in the right way, and also kind of figuring out how to approach the customer in the sales cycle because we haven't done. B2B type of sales in a SaaS sense before, and kind of learning it as we go became very important to us. Uh, And uh, thankfully, we we were able to do it. Okay, and okay, so I think what's quite interesting here is the timing of things. You kind of build it organically while Cash Basha was running on the side. But do you think, like looking back, do you think you launched at the right time? I think um, we launched at the right time. I wish, I, w- I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. I wish we had done it earlier. I, I thought, you know, it's very difficult for anyone um, you know, even though we tried to be uh, uh, very, very strict about the KPIs that we set, like I said, you know, the 60 orders with Cash Basha, make it or break it type of thing, uh, we had some very strong attachment to all these different opportunities that we did, uh, and because yeah. we're humans. But exactly. you know, Sinan, uh, my partner, was fantastic at you know a clean cut type of uh, uh, decision making type of thing. I'm more of an emotional type of guy, and and you know that dynamic uh, of being very different. Him and I uh, kind of allowed us to, um, uh, to to make those tough decisions sometimes and, yeah. uh, and move forward. So uh, we we had to kind of uh, uh, do that and and, and move on. Uh, but did we launch at the right time? You never. There's never a right time. I think when you launch. Uh, you have to decide on it being the the uh, the time that is that is just the the, the time that you launch at, and your if your product mm-hmm. is not uh, uh, featureful, that's okay. Uh, you just mm-hmm. can't keep postponing uh, the tough decisions being made because the more you postpone, the uh, more debt that you're going to collect and other opportunities in your life that you're not pursuing. So. Yeah, exactly. And I guess what made this harder, Cash Basha was relatively doing well at that time as well, right? So the business was running, you it was generating a lot of cash on the side. So yeah. it was definitely a harder decision uh, about where to spend more of your time and investments and focus. Yeah. And but what what what's uh, where's Cash Basha at now? Uh, great question. So Cash Basha is a sizable business uh, still today. I think Cash Basha went through a number of different um 
uh, events, uh, some very fortunate, others unfortunate, uh, that affected the business for a while. Um, uh, not going into the details of those events, but uh, you know that's part of the reason why we thought that you know we knew that cash Basher was an experiment. We knew that we had to build something that was more uh, that was going to kind of transcend uh, the the problems that uh, are uh, you know have to do with businesses that have physical operations most of the time, uh, and and you know cross border shipping, customs, all these different things. And so that's why we gravitated towards an idea like Maxam, which really or SaaS based uh, product, which really doesn't have those types of problems there. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, cash Fashion specific is doing quite well. It has its own team, independent. We don't focus on it. Uh, we're focusing on Maqsam in full. Uh, but but the team behind Cash Basha brought it back to life uh, in a way that is actually still significant for it to still be around. And I think that was one okay. of the things that kind of switched in our minds that, you know, this is a great business for some people, uh, I mean, who are also invested in that in, in that business and are partners in that business and, and want to grow it and they're very passionate about it. So uh, we, uh, you know, uh, are uh, uh, basically, we, we help them from, from afar, but we're not involved in the day-to-day -day, uh, whatsoever. But the, the blessing and curse that Cash Basha is, is that it's a blessing because we learned so much, it generated enough uh, income for us to be able to experiment with all the other things that we wanted to do. So it became the mm -hmm. funding grounds for all the other things that we were experimenting with and learning about. And we got so exposed to so many different things that we could not have done without actually experimenting with uh, Cash Basha or going through that experience with its highs and its lows. And I would say that's probably one of the most comfortable forms of early stage funding, right? Because you're working at your own pace, experimenting and learning at your own expense, which is definitely an advantage to external funding. Now, just going back to that initial group of customers that you onboarded on Maqsam. So you've mentioned the Tibbi, but who came next? How did you grow that to 100 customers? So um, when we look at uh, Maqsam and how we approach some of our clients, yes, I mean, definitely, uh, we were hitting on a real pain point, specifically in the uh, customer service and uh, and sales uh, kind of communication uh, problems that were that some companies were experiencing. So, uh, as I said, I had a hit list of, of clients that uh, or, or contacts of mine that I knew would pick up the phone when I called them who uh, I knew they knew what I mean what I was building before and I had some sort of reputation with them or at least some some sort of credit with them that they would be willing to kind of try out something if I told them to try it out and then mm -hmm. it just also we also found such great uh, resonation from their use of the product uh, that we knew that they would want to start paying for it. And we didn't go after a specific vertical market, uh, like, you know, Tobi uh, is in the uh, you know, telemedicine field. Uh, we didn't go after a particular vertical market. We said that let's just spread ourselves out and, and see what who's going to who's going to bite when we put things out mm -hmm. there. And it just so happened that the uh, once we tuned our pricing model, once we fine-tuned uh, the the product, just more people started telling others about it, and then this ripple effect happened again. Uh, we have have until this day done a uh, marketing campaign uh, for Maksam. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in, in the past year and a half, uh, with the big decision that I think allowed us to grow really was just knowing, studying obviously uh, uh, SaaS uh, sales, B two B SaaS sales very, very well, getting very good at it. And mm -hmm. for me to kind of assume the position that 
kind of nobody else wanted to assume uh, in the business, which is just uh, leading the business uh, team and the sales operation. So I became very good at, uh, I've obviously presented most of our products uh, to the customers. I was doing naturally without calling it sales, I was actually you know selling the, 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 the company pitching, yeah. and then pitching. And so um, being able to do that and focus on it fully and being able to identify the right customers, that whole mix together allowed us to get to mm-hmm. the few hundred clients that we have today in the market. Nice. I absolutely love that approach because honing in on that ideal customer profile, figuring out what are the common characteristics of that customer that is willing to pay and convert quite fast is definitely a long iterative process. And way too often we see startups that grow their sales team, bring on uh, quite a few sales representatives before getting to that point. And that tends to be a waste of resources because you're still not clear on who you're targeting, right? So would you say that your customer profile, your target customer has evolved since you launched? Are you still going after that same customer profile that you did at the start? Not really. Well, I think what we learned uh, is is not necessarily going after a uh a market or a, a customer type. It's more about uh, looking at the characteristics of particular customers because uh, communications in general is, uh, is at the heart of business wherever you go in any industry. Whether you're a restaurant and you're collecting orders uh, you know, through, through, through the phone or if you're an insurance company and you're contacting customers, communications and those channels are common between every single business uh, as we all know today. And that's growing even more through text and video and all, these, uh, all that, uh, that, that evolution. So um, with us, what we looked for are particular characteristics, knowing that if a customer has branches or offices or teams that are distributed or had to be remote or uh, uh, wanted to make uh, cross-border calls uh, cheaply with local numbers or uh, perhaps even um, you know had multiple uh, um, uh, branches in the same country, uh, they would want to kind of have this consolidated uh, uh, system that can help them get up and running five minutes uh, the alternative would be a high upfront cost in the thousands of dollars and uh, them not being able to get anything set up for maybe weeks, if not months, with licenses and all this legacy type of enterprise level uh, technologies that were available. With us, it's five minutes, you're up and running, and uh, you know you have all the bells and whistles that you'd expect from an enterprise level system, but in a way it's presented to you uh, simply and doesn't require a diploma for you to be able to, to, to use and, and get the, all the insights and benefits that you'd expect from a larger system. So for Ad, having launched several business ideas, several products, and there are a few that we didn't even get the chance to get into today, looking back, what would you say is your biggest lesson learned? My biggest lesson learned, uh, there are a lot, uh, quite honestly, but I'd say one of the most important ones is um, a lot of people Talk about failure, obviously, uh, and uh, you know, and I've said this before. I think uh, maybe a bit uh, uh, naively that uh, you know, there's only one face of failure, and that's to give up. But I think uh, I changed that today. I think giving up uh, in the right manner is the smartest thing you can do, which means giving up on particular ideas in the right way at the right time, and being able to put hard stops to uh, uh, any progress of any product if you don't see things working is one of the strongest things that you will build as an entrepreneur. There's nothing wrong with having a great product, 
a great idea, a great market, and just saying that this doesn't work. For some reason, mm -hmm. you identify that, sometimes you identify it, maybe sometimes you don't, but for some reason, it's not working. In the case of Jabe, for example, um, it's still around, maybe something will happen with it one day down the road, who knows? But uh, really, what we had to become comfortable with, that this was a opportunity that was gonna be huge, potentially. We were two years ahead of the market, unfortunately, but um, uh, there were clear problems that we couldn't get the underwriting from the banking institutions to finance some of these orders. We had so much, we, we would have been potentially the right team to execute on this. And we had a lot of investor interest, but the investors looking at us as a conglomerate, a company that was not structured correctly at the time, uh, even though we were willing to change that and do all those things. So there's a group of, of, of unfortunate events potentially that you learn from. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think that's the biggest value that we take away from there, from there to not repeat moving forward. Uh, and so becoming comfortable with stopping that idea is, is saying no, saying no, exactly, is one of the most powerful things you can do. And quite honestly, I have uh, Sinan to thank for really instilling that in me because I was a person mm -hmm. uh, and, and maybe that's part of me, but the dynamic between us is, is that I'm the person that is uh, really trying to um, uh, make things work till the, till the last, uh, till the last moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even though it's tough, uh, it, it, I do realize how valuable it is to just let things go. That's definitely a learning that comes with time. So thank you for sharing that wisdom. I'm sure a lot of early stage founders would agree with you that it's very hard not to grow emotionally attached to that first solution or or product that you build, but saying no is key and quitting at the right time is essential. So one final question from my end that is more personal than work-related. You are a very hardworking individual, so how do you blow off some steam and take care of yourself? Um, so I guess we started off this interview talking about how um, I got into entrepreneurship, but if I could be anything else, if you come to uh, you know, for, uh, at five years old or three years old and say, hey, what would you like to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be a guitar player in a band that toured the world. And I, I still think that's one of the most amazing things. And uh, I have an obsession for guitars uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and music in general. I started out playing flamenco guitar, then went into electric guitar. And uh, luckily with a bunch of uh, actually some industry members uh, in the tech industry here and good friends of ours, uh, I was yeah. able to start a band called The Nomads a couple of years ago. And so uh, after hours, uh, you know, entrepreneur by day, rock star by night, trying to be a rock star, want to be a rock star by night. But, uh, but yeah. We, we were very lucky with that uh, and uh, you know we ended up playing a bunch of different shows and uh, and uh, you know and then really blowing off some steam that way so uh, music friends uh, you know sports uh, <laughs> the gym I've definitely become much more aware of, of what I need to do to kind of uh, be in a, a positive mental state uh, yeah. and that is very very difficult to manage if I were to say anything to any entrepreneur um, uh, you know a lot of people promote entrepreneurship and perhaps in the media there's a celebritization of entrepreneurship when you when you see all these big people who uh, are these 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 uh, founders who actually make it big very easily uh, it's not easy yeah. it's not for everyone and that's okay 100%. and uh, and you really become comfortable with the fact that you might become your own uh, worst enemy and uh, and you might get depressed and uh, nobody really talks about that stuff but uh, the right people will, will be honest about it I think and uh, and I, you know, I've gone through some very tough times myself, uh, Sinan as well, and, and and other people, and uh, and I think it's it's usually pain 
um, oh, sorry, yeah, it's, it's progress and it's growth disguised as pain. Uh, and you just have to become comfortable with that idea. Uh, and, uh, and that's how you evolve. Yeah, I love the way you phrased that. I think entrepreneurship is one of the toughest paths that one can like take on. Um, but uh, clearly it's paying off for you guys. Uh, and it's been worth all of the hard work throughout those years. Um, Fuad, this has been an absolutely great pleasure having you on the show. Uh, thanks once again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Nidhi.